and the 10 minute call comes and I just emotions are coming all over me. And at the 10 minute call, an aircraft comes alive and starts to beat and ebb and flow in one heartbeat. As the door gunners start to stand up and I can see them folding their metal chairs and putting them behind the bungees that are on the door. And I just, this emotions is coming. I can't put my finger, I can't put my finger on it. Six minutes, again, the aircraft even comes more alive. The canine handler is up front and the dog knows we're getting close and he's pulling on his lead. Three minutes, a three minute call comes and you know at three minutes, it's kind of, you're all in. You're there, there's no turning around now. They know you're there. They can hear you at the three minute call. They know you're coming into their compound to come and get them. And it was at that three minute call that it hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh my God, I've done it. I've been able to replicate that feeling I had as a 16 year old kid inside of that locker room. Hey everybody, welcome to the Leading with Vulnerability podcast. I'm your host, Yuma Barnett. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. You can see I don't have a, a guest here with me today. I had an episode all lined up with a guest, but I just realized, I kind of came to a realization this week that this episode will come out on Veterans Day. And this is my last Veterans Day while in uniform, while still serving in the U.S. Army and it's inside the 75th Range Regiment. So because of that, I thought I'd do something a little bit different, a little bit special, and uh, share two stories uh, from my past 20 plus years inside, inside the Army. I've been doing a lot of reflecting recently as I become closer and closer to retirement. And uh, some of these stories are funny. I find myself laughing out loud when I'm driving down the road. And I just thought I'd share a couple of those stories with you. Um, so don't turn this off. Uh, don't push next because I'm not interviewing somebody. You'll definitely get something out of this. You'll get a good laugh. Some of you were part of some of these stories. Uh, uh, one in particular that took place in a November in a valley in Afghanistan. And you probably, some of you already know what I'm talking about. And uh, another story or the first story I'm going to share is a story about when I found my purpose, right? And that's kind of something I'm doing now is trying to find my next purpose outside of the U.S. Army and outside of the 75th Range Regiment. And, uh, you know, this past year, this past January, I was part of a nonprofit organization called the Honor Foundation. And through the Honor Foundation, um, it's a transition assistance. Uh, transition assistance is the best way I can put it, because but assistance seems like a word that doesn't give it as much value as it has. But the Honor Foundation helps soft veterans it uh, doesn't matter if you're an operator or support, if you've touched soft at some point in your career, the Honor Foundation helps you in that transition process through a 12-week program, helping you um, grow your emotional intelligence, learn how to tell your story, build a resume, do interviews. They do the whole thing. Um, uh, I am not exaggerating when I say it's one of the, it's the best thing I've ever done as far as my transition goes. And those of you that know me, I actually transitioned out of service back in 2004 and then ended up coming back in. And I had a bad transition then, and I'm trying to do everything opposite of what I did then. And the Honor Foundation has really helped me in that. And I, I'm super thankful for that organization. I love their mission. I love what they do. And I'll do another whole episode, kind of deep diving uh, the Honor Foundation and what they do. But as part of the Honor Foundation, when I completed that program, they invited me to come back to a storytelling workshop where I could come and craft, craft my story, work on crafting stories to tell. And it was facilitated by a group, another nonprofit called The Moth. So if you're not familiar with The Moth, kind of think like TED Talk, they're talking on stage, talking to audiences and crowds, but it's more, and it's focused around telling stories, stories from the heart. So I was super honored that the Honor Foundation 
thought I had interesting enough stories and storytelling ability to bring me back in so I could get better. And the moth sent some of their best storytelling facilitators and coaches to train us up for those two week period that we did it. And we got to share a story out of it. And some of you have heard this story that I'm going to share. I use it when I do public speaking or when I do leadership development conferences and speaking. And this is kind of sometimes a story that, I, that I'll open with. And it's a story that, you know, when I found my purpose, you know, and it wasn't right away when I joined the Army. It was a few years later that the stars kind of aligned. And I realized, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do for the next 20 years or more of my career. So I'm going to share that story with you as previously recorded over the summer. I haven't shared it with anybody before this version of it. So I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I did recording it. And then when we're done with that, it's about five minutes long. We'll come back and I'll jump into the, uh, to the next story. So without further ado, let's listen to my first story uh, from the moth uh, facilitators and coaches through the honor foundation. And uh, I hope you like it. To begin my story, we have to go on a trip back in time to when I had a little bit more hair and the waistline was a little bit smaller to a 16 year old me inside of a high school locker room with my basketball team. And inside of that locker room is like every other locker room out there, no matter what your sport is. The, the clang and the bang of the lockers opening and closing, the smell of athletic take and tape and tiger bomb, uh, people off in the corners listening to music or drawing up on whiteboards and preparing for the game to come. I'm in that locker room and I'm preparing and I start having a feeling coming over me, but I can't put my finger on it just yet. As my team, we leave the locker room and we enter this long, dark hallway. And in this long, dark hallway is where we prepare and run out onto the court. And we're waiting for our warm-up music, which just happened to be that year, Metallica, Inner Sandman. And if you've ever heard that song or even just saying it out loud, I know you can hear it, the melody in your head. And you know that what that song and how it builds. And I'm standing in this long hallway and Metallica Inner Sandman is playing and I just get come over with chills and emotion of all the work and all the time I put in with this team. And we're about to go play a district rival that we haven't beaten in 20 years. And as this feeling is coming over me, I turn and I look to Ben Moeller, who's a six foot seven inch guy. He's much taller than me. And I tell Ben, and I say, man, I wish, I wish we could do this and feel this feeling for the rest of our lives. This feeling we have and Metallica is playing and it hits and we run out on that basketball court and all the pageantry that surrounds a high school team and a high school game. And we win that game. <clears throat> we beat that team. My brothers are there who had never beat that team, family members, friends. And it was just a great moment. <clears throat> and as we leave and head back to that same locker room and we're living in the joy of the win, I, again, I say to Ben, because he was a close friend, man, this is amazing. I wish we could do this forever because I knew it was going to end at some point. High school is going to end. Basketball is going to end. And I'm going to have to do something else. So let's, now we have to fast forward nine years, which is a long time. And a lot had happened. 9-11 had happened. Uh, I lost my best friend in combat. And I'm a squad leader at 1st Ranger Battalion. And I'm on my fifth deployment to Al-Assad, Iraq. <clears throat> and we're inside of a ready room. And a ready room is a lot like a locker room. That's where you go to prepare before you leave. And the sounds and the smells are very similar to that same locker room feeling I had when I was a 16-year-old. And I started to have this same feeling again when I couldn't put my finger on it. And I can hear the, the, the linked ammunition being pulled from the drum and slapped over the feed tray of machine guns. And I can hear the rips and tears of Velcro they're putting on their body armor to head out. The uniform, just like a uniform we wore in those games. 
And I can see as we exit that ready room and we're walking toward the CH-47 helicopter and I can see the rotors spinning. And as the rotors are spinning and we get closer, you can feel the heat coming off of the engines. And as you break under the rotors, the heat dissipates because you've passed the engines. And the thing, one thing that you feel is the crew chief and the platoon sergeant counting you on as you walk onto the aircraft. And that aircraft is very similar to that long hallway that I stood in as a 16 year old kid. And I get on that aircraft and sit down and snap link in with again, my best friends in the world, all the love, the, the love I have for them, the blood, the sweat, the tears, the training. And that aircraft aircraft takes off, reaches a hover, and then peels out of Al-Assad. I can watch the lights of Al-Assad fade into the background. And there's a calm that comes over an aircraft that between the time of when you take off and the 10-minute call. It's loud, it's noisy, but it's so peaceful. And there's just a piece that comes, people are getting a little bit of sleep or having a snack or looking at their garments or their graphics for the operation to come. And on this particular night, we were going to the X. We're going to the hornet's nest. We're go they know we're going to be there when we land. And the 10-minute call comes and I just emotions are coming all over me. And at the 10-minute call, an aircraft comes alive and starts to beat and ebb and flow in one heartbeat. As the door gunners start to stand up and I can see them folding their metal chairs and putting them behind the bungees that are on the door. And I just, this motion is coming. I can't put my finger, I can't put my finger on it. Six minutes. Again, aircraft even comes more alive. The canine handler is up front and the dog knows we're getting close and he's pulling on his lead. Three minutes. A three minute call comes and you know at three minutes, it's kind of, you're all in. You're there. There's no turning around now. They know you're there. They can hear you at the three minute call. They know you're coming into their compound to come and get them. And it was at that three minute call that it hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh my God, I've done it. I've been able to replicate that feeling I had as a 16 year old kid inside of that locker room. And I'd had some trouble at this time. I was newly married, just had a son. I didn't know if staying in the army and being a ranger was something I was gonna do or if I was gonna choose another path to be a better family man. But I knew at that three minute call that I had found my purpose, what I was supposed to do in life, or at least for the next 20 years was train and lead rangers into combat. The one minute call comes, the bird comes out a hover and lands and we all know what that feels like and the dirt and the dust coming off and the mad dash out of that aircraft is just like the mad dash out of that locker room hallway that I had as a 16 year old. I was just so overcome with emotion that I was, I know I was the first one to the breach that night. That mission happens. We move to the Xville HLZ and we move back to the uh, aircraft and we come back to that same ready room, that locker room. And I tell my squad and my teammates, I'm re-enlisting. This is it. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I knew there were consequences to it as a husband and a father, but I knew I had to serve my country. And that's the night I found my purpose and I didn't even know I was looking for it. Hey, well, um, I hope you enjoyed listening to that story as much as I did telling it. Uh, anytime I hear that story or hear Metallica's Inner Sandman on the radio, I still get goosebumps and chills all over because it takes me back to that high school locker room and it takes me back to inside that aircraft when we're about to infill on the objective. So, uh, so stories are super, super important to remember and tell stories. Um, it's, uh, it's how movies and books are written. You know, that's the reason I joined the military is because of stories that were told about, you know, Black Hawk Down or even fictional stories based on true events like Saving Private Ryan. So I think storytelling is super important. Storytelling in your life, storytelling in job interviews, you got to be able to craft and tell stories around your experiences and what you've done. So again, thanks to the Honor Foundation and the Moth for doing that. It was a great time. And I hope you enjoyed the, that story, you know, like I said, like as, as much as I do telling that story. 
But the other story that I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's another story, you know, when I think about that time, this story I'm going to tell you in the moment when I was in it, I couldn't wait to get out of it, right? A three-day patrol that turned into a 45-day patrol um, in the mountains of Afghanistan was miserable in a lot of ways. Uh, but looking back on it and retrospect and reflecting on it, one of my favorite deployments, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Uh, those of us who are there, when we say the words Kantiwa, Afghanistan, a certain level of emotions and feelings always arise. And it's always followed in laughter when you think about some of the things that happened there. So I'm just going to share a little bit about that story because it did happen in November over Thanksgiving and it's Veterans Day. And like I said, my last Veterans Day in the uniform of the, of the United States Army. So it's uh, the winter, early winter of 2002. And I'm 90% sure it was 2002. That's part of getting older as you start to forget certain dates. But I was going back and I, it's like it's 2003. No, I'm pretty sure it was November 2002. If I'm wrong, I know some of you out there will have no problem correcting me, which I'm fine with. Uh, but that winter of 2002, uh, the uh, regiment, we got no noticed surged over to Afghanistan for Operation Winter Strike. And, you know, when you go from Savannah, Georgia, you know, uh, no mountains, uh, 2,000 feet elevation, uh, and within a week period, you're at eight to 11,000 feet elevation in bitter cold. It is, a, it is a shock to the system coming from uh, the Beach Boys down there in Savannah to the mountains of Afghanistan. But that's what we did. We surged over there quickly uh, with most of the regiment, if I recall correctly. And like I said, it's hard to recall a lot of the upfront details because everything happened so fast. It was everything was really fast paced from when we left to when we got in country, to when we were loading helicopters and flying up into the mountains. But there are some things I do remember about it when we got to Afghanistan and stepping off that plane and it not being the 70 degree Savannah winter. You know, it was 30 degrees and snow covered mountains that surround Bagram Airfield there. And it just had a feel about it because we were moving so rapidly to, to conduct this operation. And we get there and everything's going hurriedly and we're getting ammo and uh, packing buddy bags as a team because we were only going to be in there for three to five days max. So we didn't, we, everybody wasn't bringing a sleeping bag. You weren't bringing all your cold weather gear and all your cold weather equipment because you weren't going to be in there for the bitter parts of the winter. You were going in and, and coming out. So I remember we were packing all those bags, packing all the ammo, but we also thought this was going to be a pretty good operation. Nobody, no U.S. forces had really been this far into the mountains at that time where we were going. Um, we didn't really know what to expect. We expected, you know, the worst. We expected to come off those helicopters in a, a blaze of, of gunfire. So we were loaded down really heavy with ammunition and explosives and whatnot. And I remember on the airfield, all the aircraft lined up, you know, in the dark there and everybody's counting and you're talking to your team members and letting them know. Cause I was a team leader at the time, a Sergeant, uh, team leader, first squad. I was first squad, first platoon, alpha company, alpha team leader. So if you do that all backwards in your military, I was basically the point man for the 75th Ranger regiment. I'll repeat it. First squad, 
first platoon alpha company, alpha team leader, point man for the regiment. Um, there's a lot of people that thought that a lot of people named Yuma thought that that was the case. I even told that to the Sergeant major during my E five promotion board. When he asked why he should promote me, I said, well, because I'm the point man for the regiment. If we do a regimental movement to contacts, you know, in company order, I'm, I'm the point man. So, um, I thought highly of myself as a team leader, as you could tell. I've been humbled a few times since then, but that's what you want in a team leader. Somebody you got to pull back and not somebody you got to push forward. But I digress. I'll, I'll, I'll quit talking about that. And uh, we're on that airfield. And I remember the chaplain speaking to us and the task force commander. And it just had a feel like they thought we were going to go into that valley and it was going to be a it was going to be a gunfight. And we didn't know if all the aircraft were going to make it out there. We didn't know if we were all going to make it out of there. And we loaded up on those aircraft and they all take off from Bagram and we're flying. And as you fly out, the mountains slowly get taller and taller and the air coming into the aircraft slowly gets colder and colder as you climb in elevation. And I remember as we break into the valley there, you can see the mountains and they're starting to rise as your helicopter's flying in. And it sometimes, it almost feels like you could reach out and touch the rock faces of the mountains. And we're flying in there, the moonlight shining down, I can still see the helicopter's shadow bouncing and moving off of those mountains, those valleys as we're moving in. And we're moving into this valley and you can see a big river down there. And I can remember I used to spend a lot of my summers um, up in Colorado on the uh, Piedra River. And I looked out and I thought, wow, that looks just like the Piedra River. It was a big white water, rushing water underneath the moonlight bouncing through my night vision. And we move into that valley and we're getting closer to infill and we're landing on the floor of the valley and there's the village off off built up into the hillside and in one portion there's a spot we called castle gray skull it was a large fortress thing that they told us was there from like napoleon era days that's what it looked like a big castle castle gray skull there kind of in the middle center of the valley right off the river there the helicopters, we come in, we land, uh, we all run off the back of the helicopters. We're, like I said, we're pretty heavy. We're only carrying buddy bags of, of warm gear and equipment, but we all had our rucksacks on, which were heavy. So with all the ammo and body armor coming off of that aircraft, you know, everybody's carrying easily a hundred plus pounds of equipment. We get off the aircraft and we're ready for the hail of bullets and uh, it never happens, right? And the uh, aircraft lift off and pull out of the valley. And I just remember how quiet it was. The only thing you could really hear was the roar of the river that we were right there by. And other than that, dead quiet. And you could hear some of the aircraft that were overhead, you know, in a support capacity. And it wasn't like we thought it was going to be. You know, I think there was one um, engagement right on infill with a different platoon on a different part of the valley. But it was just quiet. It was eerie, eerily quiet. And we're hearing on the radio, you know, we're getting reports that there's a lot of movement in the village and in the village down the valley a little ways, people moving up into the hills. And, you know, you don't know what they're doing. You don't know if they're going up there to set in um, ambushes or if they're hiding their weapons, if they're getting their weapons, if they're going to wait till daylight and attack us or what. So we stayed down there in the bottom of that valley, I'm fairly certain, until sunrise, right? And I remember being in that valley, you can't. At night, you know the mountains are big and you know it's grand and kind of have an idea of what it looks like. But until that sun peaks over those mountains, you don't 
really get the feel for where you are, right? And finally, when that sun peaks over those mountains, one, you're super happy because it's about to warm up a little bit. You know, in my days growing up as a rancher, gathering cows before sunlight, you're always waiting for the sun to come up over the rise to warm up your, warm you and your horse up for the, for the remainder of the day. Same feeling down there in that valley floor as the sun comes up over the mountains and it kind of illuminates the valley. And you kind of, that's when you get an understanding of just how big those mountains are, right? How big and rough and rocky and how the terrain is. And there are some trees, but not as many trees as you would uh, see in uh, Colorado or whatnot, but still looked very similar to some of the places I've been in Colorado up in the high country above snow, snow level line. And just really beautiful, beautiful country. Reminds me, you know, kind of of New Mexico where I grew up. The weather was very similar. Elevation, very similar. And you see the, you got to get an understanding of, of where you are. And again, it's still just eerily quiet. The village starts to come alive like it was would any other day. Farmers are coming out and they're looking at us and curious uh, of what the heck's going on. But uh, they kind of went on with their day and very uneventful. Um we stayed down on that valley floor. I can't remember how long. I don't think it was that long. And we started moving up into the valley to start clearing some of these um, houses and stuff that we thought some of the insurgents or the Taliban were living in. So I do remember very, I mean, very much so. I remember walking up into the valley higher on these tiered farm fields, right? There's a farm, they, everybody, you know, you, you farm it, you kill it, you eat it. It all happens there. Um, I remember walking up those tiers and they're three to four foot tiers and you got a hundred pounds of stuff on you and you got to climb up the tiers and you just came from Savannah, Georgia at, you know, 200 feet elevation at its highest point to where you're sitting at 8,000 or 9,000 feet and your kids can't catch your breath. You know, you're running a five mile run in 33 minutes back in Savannah, but here you can't even breathe and you're just climbing up those tiers and I was behind a machine gunner and I'm watching him struggle just up these tiers, you know, not struggling because he's out of shape or not struggling because he can't do it, struggling just because the sheer amount of weight we are carrying along with climbing up those, those tiers. So we're climbing up those tiers and um, we finally make it to the top and we clear some of the village, right? And as we're doing that, as we're clearing it, Everything, uh, you know, we found a few things, some weapons and some, you know, um, old artillery shells and mortars. And, you know, I think we eventually take them out and destroyed them. And, uh, you know, we're still at this point. We're thinking we're only going to be there for three to five days. So we occupied a house there and, you know, start um, pulling guard shifts and guard duty. And it was fairly shortly into that rotation, into that trip that we saw our first real snowfall and it snowed, you know, a good foot. And a lot of guys hadn't never seen snow before. There wasn't much snow on the ground when we landed. There's some and some, most of it had melted. And some of the people, you know, that were from areas where there wasn't a lot of snow, this was, this was a lot, you know, a foot plus of snow. Uh, we're sleeping in the courtyards and some are inside the building and you're covered in snow. I just remember how beautiful it was, especially when the sun comes up. And you have snow on everything, all that snow with the quiet is just an amazing sight, you know, it reminded me of home. But we stayed up in that um, one house for a little while and, you know, the days start going and we're thinking we're going to leave. And they're like, well, it might be 
a little more than three to five days, right? And we only packed enough food for th three to five days. So I remember uh, my platoon, our platoon, first platoon, we ended up moving back down into the valley floor and occupying a little, um, an animal pen, right? We actually paid rent to the owner of this animal pen. And that was going to be our position. We held that position down there in that animal pen. And uh, because there's a reason for it, that was the biggest flat surface in the area. And because we were going to be there for longer than three to five days, they were going to have to airdrop supplies into us, uh, food. Um, they ended up airdropping our sleeping bags into us. They ended up airdropping a lot of things into us because, like I said, this three to five day patrol suddenly turned into we don't know when you're coming out of here. Right. We want to see how the enemy reacts to an American presence for a long period of time in this valley. Uh, so. You know, we weren't packed for that. So I remember two specific airdrops that really stick out in my mind is the first airdrop. I'm 90% sure it was the first one. We got more food, more MREs, those meals ready to eat, packaged ready to eat. And we're setting up, you're setting up the, the drop zone for the markers for when the aircraft's supposed to release them. You know, we have a Pathfinder out there who's been Pathfinder trained to help, you know, so it lands where you want it to. Um, a few minutes uh, before the airdrop, we secure the area, you know, where all the, uh, all the, all the MREs are going to land. So we're sitting there and you see the, the C-130 flying down the valley, right? And it comes on heading, opens the tailgate and drops the, the supplies, you know, pallets, big, large pallets. So we had a whole company in there that you had to feed. You had to drop in, you know, more meals to, and, uh, we we're sitting there and I remember looking up through my nods at the, as they're falling. And I'm like, that's not, those aren't going right here where we're going to be able to recover these very easily. And they are up there and they're drifting. And if you've ever seen a parachute, you know, somebody parachuting out of there, sometimes they can kind of hang, they'll hang there, they'll catch some air and float down a little slower. I remember watching one in particular that was kind of hung up there and was floating down slower, not where it's supposed to be floating down. And it ends up coming down way, probably a good seven, 800 meters away up the mountain on the other side of the river. And you see when it hits, it just explodes and MRE boxes go everywhere. And that wasn't the only one. There was multiple that, that went everywhere. One might have landed close. Uh, I know one went through the roof of one of the Afghans uh, little huts there. Um, and uh, we ended up we were going to pay him money for that, but he ended up just wanting the plywood and the honeycomb cardboard that came on the, uh, on the, on the drop instead of our money as payment for us destroying his house with our, our drop. Um, that drop I remember very well. And this other drop is when they knew we were going to be there longer, they had to drop in more cold weather gear. They had to drop in the rest of our sleeping bags because we left that stuff back in Bagram bagged up in the event that we might need it later. Um, I think they knew all along we were going to need it later, to be honest. They just didn't tell us. But again, we set up the airfield. They bring it in. Uh, and then you drop the parachutes and you're watching it float down and you know what's in it. You know it's sleeping bags and more MREs and stuff. And there's one pallet that floats off of the little drop zone we have there and lands directly in the river right <laughs> and we're sitting there and we're all looking at it and we're like please do not let that be 
the cold weather gear and all the sleeping bags. Because these are big, puffy, like downfield sleeping bags. So you can imagine how heavy they'd be if they got wet. Well, we don't have to imagine it because we got to pull wet, heavy sleeping bags out of the river. Uh, so on both those occasions with the drop, I remember it because it was miserable. The first one with all the MREs scattered all over Afghanistan, it felt like. It took us two days, I think, to recover all those MREs. And we had that river. The river was big. It was a pretty big river up there. And it was moving at a very good pace with all the snowfall and snowmelt. So we we're recovering those MREs and we're walking across this little bitty footbridge and when I say bridge, I use that term loosely because it was just a tree log across the river. And you have all your gear on and your gun and all your ammo. And you walk, we'd walk you to 500 meters this way, find the MRE boxes, pick up two of them by the little straps, and then hump them back down the mountain across the little footbridge. And it's amazing. I don't think we had anybody fall in that river while we we're doing it because, frankly, you didn't want to fall in there because you, if you didn't get out of there quick, depending on what time of day it was, and if somebody went there, you're either going down river or you're going to get hypothermia and, you know, die or have to get evac'd out of there. So I remember doing that for a good two days. It was recovering those MREs off of that mountain. And then with the sleeping bags, we had a, a leader that did what a leader should do. Our first sergeant, our first sergeant took his boots off, rolled his pants off. And in the middle of the night there, waded into that freezing water and started pulling bags out with sleeping bags and those bags were not light and we would hand them off because of course they landed on the wrong side of the river as well there and then walk them down wet cross the footbridge and then you know the next day we laid them all out on whatever we could find rocks and and pins and outbuildings to dry out everybody's sleeping bags but those two drops really stick out in my head as part of the stuff that was happening and we ended up staying down in the bottom of that valley for quite a while in the animal pen right in the pen and we would pull guard there every night and there's one event that happened there one night that's that's really funny so i'm i just come off of a guard shift and for a guard we stood up on the roof of the pen and pulled guard two two of us right and we had two squads i think down there in the pen and one night i come off guard you know you're all dressed up you got to get dressed head to toe with everything to go up on guard because it's freezing outside and then you get takes you 10 minutes to undress to get back in your sleeping bag when you get back into the animal pen right in the animal pen i remind you that's where we're living and uh i'm about to doze off and chaos erupts like three sleeping bags down somebody's up and they're hitting the roof and, you know, I'm kind of dozing off. And when I wake up, I think something's happened. And I think, you know, we might be getting attacked or whatever it is. And I look over and I see one of our, uh, from the other squad has his bayonet, had his bayonet out and is jamming it through the roof of the, of the pin. And everybody, everybody kind of comes to their senses and realize nothing crazy's happened. Well, something's crazy is happening, but it's nothing dire, nothing that we, you know, need to worry. We're not getting attacked. He was getting attacked by a rat. <laughs> this rat had came down on his sleeping bag. He woke up. It scared him to death, and it ran up on the uh, in the rafters there. Raft. I use that term loosely. In the wood of there, and he's up there jamming it. You know, he's yelling, "I got this rat!" You know, and uh, he ends up stabbing the rat, and just rat blood all over the place. But it's just one of those little moments that you look back on and you you just laugh when you think about it. 
in our squad, we stayed down in that pen for, for quite a while. And we would do what was called uh, presence patrols, keeping your presence felt in the area. And, you know, we would do those during the daytime. And there's two instances on those presence patrols when we were down in the valley where um, we did some things that we got out of some hairy situations that we probably sh should have never put ourselves in. So my squad leader at the time, uh, some of you know him, Quint Pospisil, uh, recently retired. Uh, we would we were going on a presence patrol and we were going to go up the mountains because we saw a cave way up on the mountainside, right? So, of course, naturally, you want to go see what's in the cave, right? Even though it's going to be a miserable walk way up the mountain, you want to go see what's up there. So on this patrol, we kind of downloaded as much as we can because we're not heavy because we're going to go high elevation wise. And we start walking and we get up there and it was no easy task getting to this cave there was not a trail to this cave it was a like a diamond mining cave that that's what the locals there had told us and that wasn't being used anymore but we ended up working our way up to the cave which going up up something is a lot easier than coming down right if you've done any mountain climbing so we get up to the cave uh it's big it's it's a long deep cave we realize there's nothing in there. there's nobody in there we're not going to risk going in there and we turn around and start to come back down. And that's when things got a little bit hairy. And thankfully, I had my safety lanyards. We all had our safety lanyards on that we used when we were riding the helicopters. And uh, we were able to snap those safety lanyards together and lower everybody down the side of the hill off, off, of, the, off of there. Uh, and I say hill. It was a mountainside, a cliffside. Uh, uh, I thought... For sure, somebody was going to fall and we're going to either lose somebody or have to call a medevac in to, to get them out of there. But fortunately, again, somebody watching over us, we made it We made it through that, that scenario. And the next time, again, we went patrolling and there was another massive mountain off to the one side. I, can't, I couldn't tell you which direction now. You know, it's been a few years. I've slept a few times since then. But again, we we're like, let's go to the top of that. Let's see how high we can get, right? And I had a watch at the time that had elevation in it. And we were climbing up this mountain doing our patrol because it was good to get high because you could get a whole different perspective on the valley and see things and pull your binoculars out and look around and see if there was something out there that you needed to see. So we get up there high we're, or we get up there. We're pretty high. We break 10,000 feet. We're still climbing and we get run into that shell rock, those rock slides. Right. And the I'm in the alpha team leader, but I'm in the rear this time. We would alternate who was in front and the rear because when you're up front breaking brush and stuff, it gets really exhausting when you're trying to break brush, pull security and, you know, break the path for everybody else to go through. So we're up there and the team leader in front steps on what looks like a stable, gigantic piece of rock shell and it's surrounded by that other shell and it was not stable. It's about the size of a Volkswagen. I'm about 25 yards away from that alpha team leader, directly behind him. And that rock comes loose and starts sliding toward me. And it is gaining, and we are steep incline. So moving laterally left and right is no, no easy task. <laughs> so as I, you know, as I see it coming toward me, I yell to my team, get out of the way of this Volkswagen toward us, coming toward us. And then I realized that I'm, I'm actually the one that needs to get out of the way. And I kid you not, just as that rock is about to take me out and take me back down, you know, 5,000 feet the other direction, 
I dive out of the way and it narrowly misses my boots as it goes down the hill there. Just another one of those moments where your life kind of flashes before your eyes. We decided at that point we had gone high enough. You know, we'd taken enough risk for that day and we turned around and worked our way off of the off of that mountain. So we spent a few weeks, maybe even a month, close to a month in that animal pen. And then eventually, you know, it moved into later November. We moved up to the area where I said that castle Grayskull was and kind of consolidated our platoon into one one big building with that had a basement floor and a second floor. And uh, when we moved up there, um, uh, there's a few other th stories and things that happen in this in this time that we moved up to the uh, to the and consolidated there around Castle Grayskull. So Castle Grayskull became like the headquarters. The uh, the that's where all the head sheds set. That was a good spot to put radio antennas and all that stuff because it had good height in the valley. Uh, we had some generators, of course, uh, brought in or airdropped into us. So we had some power over there so we could run some communications equipment and some computers and stuff like that. And it had a terrible walk up to Castle Grayskull, the pool guard. And during this time, we were uh, a lot of guys in the platoon in the company. We smoked cigarettes, right? We were Alf Company, so we were the mobile, mobile mobility company back in the day. And uh, just like any Army mobility, if you're on a tank or a Bradley or a Striker, you, you guys smoke. Mobile mobility guys smoke cigarettes. I don't know what the deal is. Uh, but we had a lot of guys that smoked and we would pull guard and we all kind of had it down that if you smoked a cigarette and we were, we weren't smoking Marlboros, we were smoking Afghan pine lights, baby. Um, probably the reason I lost all my hair, to be honest with you, but we would smoke those cigarettes, but we all knew that if you smoked a cigarette on guard, you had an hour guard shift, you smoked two cigarettes, that's 14 minutes of your guard shift gone, of freezing out in the cold, right? So most of us would smoke two or three cigarettes on guard because we knew we were going to be gone 14 or 21 minutes was going to be passed while we were smoking. Just terrible, right? And if you were unfortunate enough to draw the walk up to Castle Grayskull at two in the morning, you come out of there and you walk up this incline to the door at Castle Grayskull to pull security, right? And if you were not on Castle Grayskull and you're over at the main house, we, you stand on the corner there and you could watch the person that was going to Grayskull walk up the hill. And at night, frozen, the ice, you know, that's frozen back over the path and you could sit there and watch and you would be like, oh, here, yep. Uh, right about there. Yeah. He, yep. He fell down. He hit the ice patch and fell down. Uh, and you know, you get a good, good chuckle out of it because you didn't draw Grayskull that night. Right. So, uh, some, the guard shifts were terrible. It was just a long hour, especially at night, just freezing to death. Take you 20 minutes to get dressed, 20 minutes to get undressed, and then get to go stand out in the wind, in the cold and smoke cigarettes and pull guard, you know, uh, just <laughs> a terrible experience that is one of the, again, there's one of the better experiences I've ever had. Um, and another event, you know, inside of Castle, when we moved up to that area is, uh, we, we knew the locals, we were renting the built, renting these buildings from the locals that were there. There was one that kind of took a shine to me, right. And, uh, called him blue. Uh, if you've, the movie old school was really popular then. So, this older Afghan gentleman who would help us out and kind of show us where to go if we were doing patrols, if there was somebody bad in the village, Blue would help us out, old Blue. And I, I would always say, hey, you're my boy, Blue. 
And I have a picture of me and blue together somewhere. I hope I can find it and put in the, in the episode for you guys watching on YouTube, but blue would come around every day and he would come when I was on guard and he would talk with me, you know, the best he could talk with me is a loose term because he didn't speak a lick of English and I didn't speak a lick of whatever dialect of Dari Pashtu or Afghan that he was doing, but we'd communicate and, uh, blue and I, he just took a shine to me. You're my boy blue. Right. And, uh, uh, I always wondered what happened to blue when we left. I think I probably know what happened to blue cause he helped us so much. And, uh, that's unfortunate, but, uh, just one of those things that you, that you don't expect to find in the middle of the Afghan mountains is a, is a old, older Afghan gentleman that just kind of befriends you and you create a nickname for him. And he always coming around and check in to see, uh, if I was on guard and, and, and this stuff, but, all that time on guard and over there and walking up to Castle Grayskull, we were uh, we had gotten some five gallon water cans for water. Uh, again, airdrops to us or whatever it was, and we would go and it would squads would rotate who was going to go load or you know fill up the water jugs, and there was a creek that ran right through the middle of the village. Okay, so our squads. Our squad, first squad's time comes around, it's water resupply. Uh, um, no big deal. And we'd had some fresh snow or something and the water was running really well through the middle of the village. And we we're like, well, I mean, we don't have to walk way down to the river or we don't need to walk, you know, way over here. We can just go right here and use our filter systems and pump the water into the, the water jugs. You know, we have probably six or eight water jugs, you know, five gallon water jugs. It looks like one of those gas cans. So our squad, we move out there and you push security out and we're sitting there and we're pumping the water cans full, right? We're thinking we got over. We didn't have to walk a long ways because we got this nice white water stream coming right through the middle of the village right here. And uh, <laughs> we're pumping the water in and uh, an Afghan comes out. This is in the morning. An Afghan comes out of his house and, you know, we'd been there for a while on that by now. So they're used to us. And he looks at us and he comes and he's upstream of where we are, right? And he comes over there in his, his man jammies and he drops trowel, right? Takes his pants down, straddles the little stream there, squats down, takes a crap in the stream, takes a leak in the stream, and then starts washing himself in the stream. Now, remind you, I am with the squad downstream of this pumping water jugs full and we're about done. And uh, I remember we all kind of look at each other. We look at the Afghan up there cleaning himself after using the, you know, the loo in the stream we're filling up our water jugs with. And when I, I don't even know if we said anything. I think we might have just kind of shook our heads, dumped out the four or five water jugs that we had already filled and proceeded to hump farther up the mountain away from a populated area to try again so that we weren't drinking Afghan uh, you know, Afghan under sweat and pee and poop. Cause if one's doing it, probably the whole village is doing it. So a lesson learned there there that we thought we were going to get over and do things the easy way and ended up, it was one of the most disturbing moments of my life, right? Watching that happen. But just another one of those funny stories and things that happened while we were on that, that rotation. And, and we got closer to Thanksgiving. We were kind of thinking like, there's no way they're going to leave us here for Thanksgiving, right? We're not staying in this valley all this time. Well, sure enough, 
not only were we going to stay there for Thanksgiving, they were going to fly in Thanksgiving dinner for us, right? Uh, which is sounds great until you have to secure the area, uh, set up place for somewhere to you know to eat this because they flew it in in mermites. And if you're not familiar with the mermites, big square plastic dish. And they flew in a legit Thanksgiving dinner, helicopters land that we wish we were getting on to fly back to the chow hall. We unloaded mermites for a company, Thanksgiving mermites, mashed potatoes, turkey, gravy, the whole thing, a whole bunch of candy. And we set up tables around in this valley floor with the honeycomb that was on the airdrops where they package things in honeycomb, that big square honeycomb. And the water cans and fuel cans, because we had fuel cans because, you know, of course, we had to burn our own feces while we were up there, right? I mean, why wouldn't we? Uh, but I digress. We set up a Thanksgiving dinner down there in this valley floor, and we had Thanksgiving dinner. And there's a picture of us all sitting around having Thanksgiving dinner. And you got guys pulling guard and guys are in there eating their turkey dinner that they flew into us, which, again, one of those things at the time, we were like, this is terrible, right? Looking back, again, one of the greatest memories and experiences of my life is eating Thanksgiving dinner down there late November, the mountains of Afghanistan, um, with some of my greatest friends in the world, you know, uh, just a great experience and a great memory to look, to look back on. And we did that Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, we washed everything out in the river right over, you know, a hundred yards this way. And uh, they came back in later with some resupply stuff and we loaded up the mermites and again the helicopters left without us so now we're rolling into december and we're still there and uh more snow right is coming it's uh it's cold we haven't showered in 25 days coming close to 30 days only had one maybe two uniforms if you ripped one up and they air dropped one into you and we're washing uniforms in the river and we're doing presence patrols every day and we're going out at night. And on one patrol, we went really far down the valley. And I remember we're walking down the valley and the battalion sergeant major was with us at the time. He came in at some point. I don't remember exactly at what point this was when we did this, but at some point in this 45 days, we did a patrol down the valley, right? And we would go clear, the, clear these villages and see what was there. And we come up on a building that has the Olympic rings on it, like like Olympic rings. And we are, I kid you not, there's an Olympic athlete training in this village to go to the Olympics to represent Afghanistan. And he comes out and he's a big Afghan, a wealth of a man. And he was going, I do believe, in shot put, right? <laughs> and our Sergeant Major at the time, he was a big guy too. And uh, they were talking and they he challenged him to a shot put throwing competition. So we're sitting there pulling security in this village as we're clearing through it, find the Olympic rings, an Olympic, hopeful Olympic athlete in the middle of this village in Afghanistan for shot put comes out and goes into a shot put throwing competition right there as we sit around, pull security and watch. You can't make this stuff up. And of course, when you're in Afghanistan and you're throwing the shot put, you don't have a shot put laying around. You have rocks that are perfectly round that they've gotten out of the river and are about the same weight as a shot put. And they sat there and they threw these rocks for a little bit of time. And I do I do recall, I'm pretty sure that the Afghan beat the Sergeant Major, right? I hope so. He's a hopeful Olympic athlete. And we sat there and we 
we, you know, we're just kind of in awe of what, what's happening, what we're seeing happen in front of us. And we reconsolidate and finish our patrol and head back up to, you know, the Castle Grayskull and the house and uh, pull, pull more security. And it's just one of those things, one of those other things that happened during this time that you just, you can't make, make this stuff up. And a lot of you might, some of you might be wondering, what did you do to pass the time while you were there? I remember there was a copy of the book 300, you know, that the Gates of Fire was on. And that thing got passed around through the whole company and read. I read that book while I was there. Somebody had brought in a Game Boy, right? One of those old square Game Boys. And we had Mario. And I might even had mine there. And we would take it up to the Castle Grey School to charge it on the generators. And if you weren't on guard and you're off and you're just in your in the house there, uh, you played Game Boy, you, you read books, or you just like blankly stared at the person across from you in disbelief that we had been here as long as we had been, been here, right? And we're still progressing into December. And it's getting closer and closer to Christmas. And uh, one of the things we, when we would call home, we had a satellite phone. So when I would call Kate, we were dating at the time. Uh, you get up on the roof and you get a signal on a sat phone and you have to dial it as fast as you can and you'd call and talk to her and I talked to Kate, you know, you get like three to five minutes and then the satellites, the way it worked with the really tall mountains, it would go, you'd lose the call, the call would drop. And you wait about five minutes and then all of a sudden you get a signal back on the sat phone, you call, you have another three to five minutes, you talk again and then you hand the sat phone off and we had like a, a roster of who could use the phone that day as we charged them and did it. And I would write letters to Kate on MRE boxes and send them to her. And she still has some of those. But it was just a really interesting experience up there in those mountains, right? And we're getting closer. Now, it's uh, we've been there for 44 days. It's Christmas Eve. I'm 90% sure Christmas Eve. And they tell us, you're leaving tomorrow. You're exfilling tomorrow. And it was kind of surreal, right? Uh that we're going to exfil out of this valley on Christmas day. And one thing I'll tell you about the Christmas. So we, we were there for, you know, we left Christmas day of all the CDS bundles and stuff. They were dropping in. We cut Christmas trees out of those bundles, those, uh, the, the cardboard, we would cut Christmas tree shape out of that honeycomb cardboard. And we, we had a Christmas tree that we put up. Right. Uh, and we decorated, we put stuff on it, MREs stuff and things we found around. We had a Christmas tree, and it's just something, you know, it was something to do to make it feel a little bit more like home because it was home for 45 days, which felt like 100 days. Um, but on Christmas, we're going to leave, right? And we start consolidating down and pulling people out of buildings and this and that. And our Christmas tree got left behind. And I don't know, they're not big fans of Christmas over there. I don't know something about their religion. But Christmas morning comes, the helicopters are early. We can hear them coming down the valley as we're about to move down to the patrol base. Uh, we're leaving. We don't really tell them we're leaving, but they have a feeling something's going on. Cause I remember blue coming over and he's like, what you guys are leaving? Like, he's like, you guys are leaving. And I pretty sure he said, I'll be dead within the next couple of days for helping you guys, which is kind of a surreal thing. You know, you want to stay there and help them as much as you can, but you also want to just get out of that Valley. Right. And the helicopters are coming down. And I remember it was kind of just a mad dash down the valley, back down those tiered farms to the helicopter landing zone. And as the helicopters get closer, they came in and they paddle turned around and they landed. I could see the, the loadmasters on the back of the helicopter. A few of them were wearing Santa Claus suits. <laughs> and 
it'll be burned in my mind forever. Those load masters, the helicopters land, they hop off, they call us onto the aircraft. We're running with, you know, 45 days worth of stuff everything else we left behind. We'd had a honeycomb Christmas tree in one of the houses and the Afghans had taken that tree out and skewered it on a piece on a on a wooden plank and set it up on there like they stabbed through the christmas tree like a final um screw you to to us and your christmas holiday as we we're leaving uh the valley and we loaded up on those helicopters and took off and it's kind of we just couldn't believe we're finally getting out of here and going home home bagram getting out of the valley and I, we were the last platoon in the valley, first platoon. Everybody else had left at this time. And we are flying out of the valley. We get back to Bagram and we land. And again, I said, it's Christmas Day. And it's around dinner time. And they tell us, hey, put your stuff down. We'll have somebody from another platoons guard it. And you guys go get Christmas dinner. Right? And so we do that. We put all of our stuff down. Somebody's guarding it. And we walk into the chow hall to get Christmas dinner. And I think we cleared the place out. I remind you, we haven't showered in 45 days. We've washed off in the river we can, but we've been wearing the same clothes, the same boots, the same three pair of socks. And we walk into that chow hall and you can see the expressions change on everybody in that chow hall as just this stench moves into the chow hall and overtakes it. But that food was so good. Hot food right off of there. Uh, I remember getting my plate of food moving over to a wall and just setting down with some of the my friends from the platoon and eating that Thanksgiving dinner and just kind of go and I can't believe what we just did for the last 45 days you know and uh like I said one of, in at the moment one of the worst experiences of my life it was terrible right so I thought it doesn't take long after that to realize that was just an awesome experience aside from being away from family and stuff like that I wouldn't trade that experience in that valley for a million dollars. I wouldn't trade it. It was it was a moment when I say the Cantiwa Valley around people who were there with us or know about it, they know about it. They think about if you're in Charlie Company, you think about walking up that valley. And when I saw them, when they walked the whole way up uh, or uh, those stories about blue or the 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 rat incident and some of the other stuff that I didn't even talk about. A great experience. So I just wanted to share that with you. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. I hope you got a laugh out of it. Um, if you remember something specific about the Cantiwa trip, leave it in the comments below. I'd love to reminisce about that. Uh, what a great experience. And I just it just goes to show you um, some of the worst things you might go through in your life. Some of the trials and tribulations might actually end up in retrospect being some of the best things that ever happened to you that really build your resiliency. And now I can really look back and on anything that I have to do now and be like, well, it's not like I'm in Cantiwa right now eating Thanksgiving dinner on a gas can next to the pit where we burn the burn the poop. Uh, but uh, great memories, great times. Happy Veterans Day. Um, thank you for your service. I mean that as a guy that's coming out. I know what the last 20 years has meant for some of us. Thank you for it. Make sure you tell stories about it and remember about it. And hit that like button. Hit the share button, hit the subscribe button. If you leave me a review, it helps drive me up in the algorithm so more people can see the podcast. And next week we'll get back into the regular format and I'll have uh, a guest on here who's a lot smarter than me to give you guys some advice. But I hope you enjoyed today's a little bit different. 
have a great Veterans Day weekend, and we'll see you on the next episode.